Hello and welcome to Working It from the Financial Times. I'm Isabel Berwick. If you're listening to this podcast, there's a very high chance you're suffering from or have suffered from burnout. In a recent Harvard Business Review survey, 60% of workers said they'd experienced burnout in recent months. And we use that term a lot. But what does it actually mean? To find out, I'm going to talk to Brooke Masters, the FT's chief business columnist. Brooke, hello. Hey. What is burnout? I think it's the idea that you are so overworked that you just can't get excited about anything else, that you just are overloaded and can't deal. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the World Health Organization caused a bit of a stir when they defined it a couple of years ago, but it's an occupational phenomenon, not a medical condition, they stressed. And it's exactly what you said, exhaustion, negativity related to your job and lack of efficiency. Do you think things have got worse in the pandemic or are we just talking about it more? I think things have got worse in that the line between home and work is harder to draw. I also think that the things that give you a break at work, like going to get coffee from the coffee machine and chatting with someone or going for a walk, don't happen as much at home. So it's really easy for the sense of too much work to build up and be unrelieved. Yeah, and I read one report that pointed out that staff are less likely to respond to surveys about well-being and burnout when they're burnt out. So the true figures might be even bigger than we think, which kind of makes sense. But is it something that you've experienced during the pandemic? Or, I mean, you've had a long and pretty stressful career covering all sorts of high-profile cases and companies. I would say I've experienced it both before and after the pandemic. Before, it tended to be like right when you were covering a case in court and you've spent months you know, sitting there listening every day on very tight deadlines. Invariably, I would get sick and depressed afterwards. During COVID, I definitely experienced it in that I really had trouble you know, sometimes being friendly and nice. You know, Every conversation was transactional. I want this. I want this now. Do it. And really had very little time for other people because I was just trying to hold my own stuff together. Right. Because actually one of the things that's happened in the pandemic that managers have been required to show a lot of empathy for their teams. And it's harsh to say, but actually too much investment in others can make you move towards burnout. What do you think the solution is there? Is it less work? That's often touted as a solution. Clearly, less work helps, but I actually think it's structural. You need to set up work in a way that you can have clear breaks. So, for example, the FT a while back did something that I thought was really pure genius, was if you have workers are on a four-day-a-week schedule, there is one day a week where they should not be answering the phone and should not feel pressure to work. But if there isn't anyone to cover their jobs, they get phone calls and they end up being unable to relax. So you need to set in place somebody who is officially assigned to cover for it, who isn't trying to balance it with another job. In the FT's case, we had younger reporters who had the opportunity to step up and do a more interesting job one day a week. And that meant that the person working part-time really was truly off on their day off and the person covering didn't resent doing it. And that meant that neither of them got overdone. That is genius, Brooke. And I'm not just saying that because I work here. I think the FT got the idea from other companies. It's becoming an increasingly common thing to help part-time people out with their workloads by seconding people to cover. But according to Belinda Palmer of the Empathy Business, which is a consultancy that helps companies measure their emotional impact on staff and customers, the answer to burnout is, you guessed it, empathy. 
what the research is very clear on is that more empathic leaders tend to have less burnout happening in their teams. We also know that more empathic leaders lead to higher engagement, more loyalty and ultimately more productivity, which is what every leader wants. So what does empathic leadership look like? And how do you juggle giving enough to your team to shield them from burnout while also not burning out yourself because you're listening to everyone else's woes? So, for example, we measure the amount of times people get interrupted on a meeting. We measure the amount of times that the senior people versus junior people talk because you don't want your senior people dominating the conversation, which is what we find. So I think the first thing you can do is really be looking at your meeting culture. Who has a voice? Is it the same old voices dominate? And are the introverts getting a look in? I think the other thing at the moment is really understanding people's emotions and managing them. Now, that That doesn't mean you have to be a therapist. You know, a lot of CEOs go, well, you know, I want to do my job. I don't want to be a therapist. It's not about being a therapist, but we need leaders who can acknowledge people's emotions and they can say, look, Isabel, you sound really frustrated right now. Are you? Belinda, you're spot on there. There have been so many times in my career when I felt incredibly frustrated or upset, but it would have been unthinkable to tell my manager anything about what was going on in my life. But in recent years, managers in all companies, I think, have got much kinder and we often feel emotionally closer to our teams, particularly during the pandemic when we've seen everybody's washing behind them every day on Zoom. But that's exhausting. And I think it's really important that we as managers learn some tips to protect our team from burnout. Yes, but also what about us? And Brooke, I wanted to ask you whether you think the great resignation or the big quit or whatever we're calling it, whether one of the factors in that might be that managers are just burnt out. I do. I think we need to be careful. The great resignation involves lots of people, not just managers. But to the extent that managers are stepping down from their jobs, I do think it's because they just are so tired of, you know, being nice and listening to everybody's problems with their dog while also trying to get the product out or, you know, get the customer served. And I do think it's made a lot of managers think about, is this really what I want to do with my life? And I think we also maybe need to talk a little bit about the different sorts of empathy because, you know, we don't have to feel what other people feel. I think that's a mistake some new managers often make, you know, crying when someone cries with you. It's more about seeing things from their point of view. Have you always felt able to separate that, Brooke? I think it can be hard, but it can be done. I mean, in some ways, what you do is you sort of mirror back what the employee says to you. If the employee is really upset, you say, I hear you're really upset. And then they feel as if you understand them because you do, but you yourself aren't getting really, really involved. I try not to cry with people. I try to hug them instead while they cry. And I do think that's important because if you get emotionally overcharged, you have no place to put it. I completely agree, Brooke. And I think that one of the big things in the pandemic is not being able to be physically with our teams because just being in a room with someone can sometimes be a great act of empathy and listening to them and hearing them out. And we just haven't been able to do that. I don't think it is the same on Zoom, whatever people say about it encouraging informality and intimacy. But let's hear what Belinda thinks managers need to do to take care of their workers. Well, I think empathy and resilience do go hand in hand. And I think self-empathy is really important. 
I think the second thing is role modeling. One of my clients, she says, right, I'm going for my, and this is of a tech company, I'm going for my mental health break. So she's making a really important signal to the rest of the team that actually mental health is really important. So I think labeling it. I think the third thing is being open yourself. So saying, look, I'm really struggling today. You know, I'm having a difficult day, but I really want to be there for everyone. You know, really stating your intention, I think is really important. And the other thing I think is, I think people are feeling very much that they've lost their purpose right now. Anxiety is high, emotional burnout is high. So I think really being clear about what is the purpose of the team and how can you as an individual, how can us as a team make a difference? The other really important thing is self-awareness. It's really interesting with the clients I work with, like some of them who are more emotionally intelligent often don't make the best leaders. And that's because they overestimate their empathy levels. And I think them really having a self-awareness and really thinking, right, okay, I didn't get that quite right. I need some feedback. How can I improve? Asking the right questions is going to get you a lot further. So I really do think that self-awareness is the key attribute I see in leaders who are really doing well right now. And it's difficult. It's really difficult. Brooke, what have you found that companies are doing on the ground to help their employees? Have you heard of any radical examples? I've heard companies that have social workers and therapists on call in a really very upfront way. Like, we have put these extra people on staff for you to call them. And I think that's actually quite effective because then when managers feel they can't cope with someone, they can say, like, the company expects you to use these services. I can refer you to them. That helps deal with the really most extreme cases. I think companies that give specific mental health days, there are some that actually like shut the whole company down for a day. Like, you know, we are taking today off. I think what I've, I mean, I think Belinda's very interesting, but I think she's stating quite a high level of interest and engagement with this. Obviously, these people are her clients. I mean, do companies really care or do they factor in a contingency to allow for burnout? You know, I think there's an awful lot of leaders who really aren't self-aware at all and don't really care. What would you say, Brooke? Honestly, I think in many cases, she's overstating it. I think companies would prefer their employees don't burn out because it costs money to replace them. But I don't think in and of themselves, they are empathetic and care in a really fundamental way. I mean, remember that the big US banks were like, everyone will go back to work right now, as soon as vaccinations started to happen. And they've had to back off a bit because people won't come. But that doesn't suggest that they were particularly caring or thoughtful about how reentry might be difficult. Companies are empathetic to the point that it suits their bottom line, not because they are empathetic as people. That's interesting, Brooke, but maybe the bottom line is things are changing. The great resignation and a new generation of workers coming up are just not going to take it anymore. And this is what Belinda has to say about that. I definitely think the next generation are demanding empathy in their leadership. But when I talk to a sort of more traditional CEO, and these are often, you know, men who have grown up, given that 95% of the FTSE 100 is run by men, companies are run by men, there is a sense that they want to be more vulnerable, they want to be open, but they think that there's not strength in vulnerability. 
And there is a lot of strength in vulnerability. And even if you don't believe that, if you think it's all soft and fluffy, which it isn't, ultimately the stats are there. More empathic companies make more money. Our Harvard Business Review Index showed that. The latest research from Catalyst shows that with more empathic leaders, there's higher productivity, there's more commitment, and there's also much more of an impact on your diversity and inclusion agenda. So Belinda's citing a couple of things there, the Harvard Business Review Index and a company called Catalyst that also produces research. But I'm not convinced that being more vulnerable does make you more money and help you employ a wider range of people. Brooke, a lot of the most successful companies are pretty hard charging, aren't they? I would say yes. The companies that do well in employing lots of different kinds of people and make a lot of money tend to be ones that attract really good people. So it's self-reinforcing. I don't think you have to be empathetic necessarily to make money that way. I also think there is a downside to being too hard charging. And it may be that this is a continuum. You know, the companies that are run by killer bosses that no one can say no to end up in trouble, a lot of them, because they can't change gears. So maybe Belinda's getting at that, which is that a boss that allows some vulnerability is much better than a boss with none. And Belinda also alludes to the fact that almost all big companies are run by men still. I mean, is actually this move towards empathy a move to what we might call softer qualities in the workplace and away from the traditional structures established by men? I mean, is our previous lack of empathy in the workplace down to a kind of version of the patriarchy or toxic masculinity, whatever we want to call it? I think it's partly down to there not being enough different kinds of role models that, yes, there was one vision of a CEO and it was Jack Welch at GE, who was like all knowing, all brilliance, you know, don't ask any questions, do what I say. And to the extent that there are a wider variety of leadership styles, yes, I think that's definitely true. And and some of that is empathetic. Some of them are just completely different. You know, they're the engineering kinds of people who are not necessarily empathetic, but they're more thoughtful and they ask questions in a different way. And certainly, you know, adding more women to the mix, adding people from different backgrounds to the mix also probably changes the dynamic as well. So in a changing workplace where we meet so many different kinds of people, how do we show empathy? And I'm especially thinking of those for whom it doesn't come naturally. Here's Belinda again. The difficulty is, is empathy in conflict where I don't like you or you don't like me we've got nothing in common my boss is just you know giving me a bollocking or whatever that's when you really need to show empathy and physiologically your cortisol is going against your oxytocin so your oxytocin is your bonding hormone your empathy hormone and your cortisol is your stress hormone so the real test if you really want to improve your empathy levels is in conflict with a person you don't like or have nothing in common with that's where you really need to start thinking about your empathy and language and asking the right questions that's really good advice because i think any team leaders probably had that experience of having someone on their team that they don't like viscerally not that i have anyone in my team that i don't <laughs> like <laughs> we We all do. And it's really interesting about, you know, the main thing at the moment is belonging. So I think for team managers, team leaders, is just feeling that you belong, that you're part of something and you're not alone. And if you get it wrong, that's okay. But you've got to try. Or you can take your team out for pizza, which is what I'm doing next week. So 
Well, that's pretty good too. I Thanks, mean, Belinda. That's good. And, and interestingly, Google did a study where they looked at, you know, what are some of the most important factors? And again, it wasn't your IQ. It was whether you had a friend at work. We know that having a best friend at work makes you 50% more likely to stay in the organisation. It increases sales. So the research is there to show taking people out for pizza Getting people to feel that they're more than just colleagues, but actual friends makes a huge difference to productivity. You've made me feel so much better, Belinda. Thank you. Is there (laughs) anything we didn't talk about that you think we should cover? Just that my teenagers think I have no empathy. (laughs) (laughs) I I think teenagers are team members that we just can't win with, I'm afraid. I've given up. So, Brooke... I was really intrigued by what Belinda said about having a best friend at work. She just sort of threw that in as a curveball. Have you had best friends at work? I have. And actually, when I did, it made going to work so much more pleasant. And the opposite was true as well. When the person who I shared a very small bureau with had nothing in common with me, I think we both dreaded work. And we eventually had to go out for drinks and talk about how much we dreaded sitting next to each other. Our bosses made us talk to each other, which was good. But I I do think a best friend, it just makes the whole thing much more pleasant. You can laugh about something. Yeah, I wrote a whole column about how sad I was when my best friend left the FT and I haven't really got over it. So Sarah, if you're listening, I still miss you. But I think what we've learned from Belinda is that it's not rocket science, actually. Listen to your teams, empathise with them, don't cry with them. That's great advice from Brooke. And maybe take them out for pizza when we can. So with many thanks to Belinda Palmer and Brooke Masters for this episode. If you want to read more about empathy, I'll put some links in the show notes and to Belinda's work. And please do get in touch with us. We want to hear from you. We're at workingit at ft.com or with me at Isabel Berwick on Twitter and Instagram. Working It is produced by Novel for the Financial Times. With thanks to the producer Anna Sinfield, executive producer Joe Wheeler, with research from Pepper Smith and Lee Meyer. We have editorial direction from Renee Kaplan and production support from Persis Love. We're taking a week off over Christmas, but we'll be back on the 5th of January with an episode on weird away days and why manoeuvring heavy machinery might just bring your team closer together in 2022. Until then, happy holidays. Happy holidays.